chapter 5. You could go there if you have a Bible. Acts chapter 5. We're in verse 12 of Acts chapter 5. We've been walking through the last number of weeks a, a really an astounding work, an astounding history of the early church. And what's taking place here in Acts chapter 5 is essentially God being faithful, God being faithful to His promise. His promise that the life of Jesus, His life and His death and His resurrection would not be in vain, and that when God intends to build His church, He accomplishes what He intends. That, that's the kind of God that we serve. We're, we're seeing explosive growth in the beginning of Acts. And right now, we're going to read another instance of the miraculous and then of persecution and resistance. And it really starts to, you start to say to yourself, like, what an amazing book, right? We're only five chapters in. We've seen periods of growth. We've seen opposition. The Holy Spirit fell in amazing ways. There's been miraculous things. And I just want to remind you as we dive into here that what Luke is giving us is a selected history from probably 30 to 40 years of the history of the, of the early church, right? And so we dive into these, these particular moments and it almost feels like you'd get breathless, right? Again, here we are again. And in some ways, we are seeing just a selected history. What we're going to find right now is once again the profound boldness and persistence of the apostles and what happens to them. So I'm going to start reading in the 12th verse. We're going to go all the way through the rest of the chapter. Let me just comment on why we do that. Um, I'm about to spend a couple of minutes reading from a a manuscript that's like 2,000 years old, right? It just seems like very counterintuitive. Hey, do you want to gather a crowd and have a great time? Have someone stand up and read to them, right? Adults just don't do this, right? And, and yet we, we come and we're committed because we believe that God intends to shape you, not by our opinions. He intends to shape you by his word. This is his gift to us and that this is not a dead manuscript. It's, it's alive and it's well and that it is for your good and for your health that we come underneath it. So we're going to listen to every word. We're going to read it 12 through 42. And I just want you to, to consider what a gift and what an, what an not ordinary thing it is for a, a bunch of accomplished good-looking, might I add, uh, folks like you as adults to come and sit and listen, listen to written word. Uh, But this is God's intention for us, so let me begin reading. Fifth chapter, twelfth verse, the book of Acts. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than, ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. 
But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We have found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you to not teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis stood up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let me pray. Words. God, you've given us words. You spoke words to bring all things into creation. The living word, Jesus, was with you before the foundation of the earth, and that word became flesh. And the word of God has become life to us. It is not far off. It is near us. It is in our mouths if we would just speak Jesus' name. Thank you for the gift that this word is to us. Thank you for the example of the persistence and boldness of the apostles. God, thank you for the growth of the church in those early days and the impact that it had so that here, a couple thousand years later, across the ocean, we, we have heard and rejoiced in the name of your Son. God, I pray that you would continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We do not want to be more settled in our own opinions and our own persuasions. We want to be laid bare before you. God, would you make this a living and an active word today? Everything that we need most desperately comes only as an act of power by your Spirit. So please, God, help us. 
We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. So is this, uh, is this getting old yet, right? Um, preach persecution. Preach persecution. Priest, priest. Some priests too. Preach persecution, right? This is like early church whack-a-mole that we're seeing take a place, take a place right in Acts. Every other chapter, right? Every other chapter. These guys just keep coming back. And just two weeks ago, we spent some time, and I focused on an episode that was pretty similar to this, right? It's pretty similar to this. You start to see this in a pattern in Acts, and it's more understandable later on. You guys remember the story with Paul and Barnabas, and there is it Silas, I think. They get thrown in prison, right? And they're singing hymns. Remember, they're just hanging out in prison. And I remember when I was a little kid, and I heard that story, and I just thought, they are the strongest, boldest, most amazing men ever, right? And it is true. It takes boldness in that moment for them to be singing in prison, but now I see it built upon this testimony, right? Of like, Peter is like, it's just old hat for him. In prison again, it's probably going to work out. I'll get released from here. God just has this way of bringing persecution. And yet through the midst of it, we are finding unbelievable growth happening in the church. Just to give you a perspective of what's happening, in these four to five chapters of text, we've gone from a scattered bunch, Right? This bunch that just was on the, just on the cusp, just right on the tails of cursing Jesus' name and saying, I don't know him, leave me alone. That in five chapters, this band that scattered and some cursing the name of Jesus, right? That, that band became, it was 120 and they're waiting in a room. And then we know 3,000 were added to that. And then a little bit later we see that there's at least 5,000 men besides the women and children, so probably 20-some thousand. There's explosive growth happening in the church, despite the fact that the government and the leaders and the religious people of the day are trying their, their best to just, to just whack down everywhere that it pops up, right? And now we find this amazing thing that in, in verse 14 of Acts chapter 5, despite this explosive growth, now verse 14 tells us, tells us what about the believers being added to their number? those who were joining. Verse 14 says, and more than ever. I say, what? Right? Like, more than ever, more than 3,000 in one day, more than ever. But what God is doing is he is working powerfully and miraculously in his church so that Jerusalem must reckon with Jesus. That's what's happening. The claims and the influence of Christianity are getting to the point where no one can sweep it under the rug anymore. No one can just say, oh, that's just a weird fringe group over there. There comes a point when everyone, it seems like in the text of Acts, everyone must reckon with Jesus Christ. And of course, this mirrors reality, right? No matter how debauched a lifestyle, no matter how firmly you espouse atheism no matter how far you run. We all that one day God has so ordained all things that everyone will reckon with Jesus Christ. The New Testament sometimes refers to it just that day. In that day. Everyone must reckon with Jesus. The claims of Christianity are such that eventually you must reckon with Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't do any good to keep putting it off, keep pushing it off. Eventually you come face to face, you reckon with Jesus. And so the thing that I want to point out and talk with you just for a little bit about today is the attitude 
the mindset, the heart of those who are reckoning with and trying to figure out who is this Jesus and what are, his, what are the people that follow him. Acts chapter 4, if we're seeing this scene, you guys remember the scene? Religious leaders, very respectable. They're there because they're, they're studied, they're brilliant, they're good leaders. And in the midst of this sort of strange, tenuous balance between religion and political influence and government, in the mix of that come these rabble-rousers, the apostles, right? And the last time we saw this, this interplay between them and we focused strictly on the apostles, I commended boldness to you. I said, Christians must be bold and this is why. We walked through the whole thing. But really, we were focusing on the apostles. Acts chapter 5 does a peculiar thing. In the midst of it, it unveils for us and shows a series of heart attitudes and opinions and mindsets of how the people who were opposing Christianity were dealing with Jesus. So if Acts chapter 4 is a picture of the boldness of the apostles, Acts chapter 5 is a handbook in how to stay, stay unchristian. This is a, a backward sort of way of looking at it, but I think it's helpful for us because we encounter people all the time whether they know it or not, they're actively putting off having to deal with Jesus. And so I want to look at mindsets. This helps us because we fall into these traps as well. I want to look at mindsets. I want to give you a handbook. I want to help you as best you possibly can. Here's how you stay unchristian. How's that for a sermon? How to stay unchristian, right? These are some of the words we're going to use. This is a little bit of alliteration. You can follow me with it. Four R words to start. I'm going to add a couple more R words at the end. Here's what we're going to see. Respect, resistance, rage, and reason. Respect, resistance, rage, and reason. These are four different ways that people who are all sort of around, surrounding Jesus, but not in, those are all attitudes of heart, opinions of the mind that are keeping them from being devoted to who Jesus is. Respect, resistance, rage, and reason. Before we dive into those R words, I want to just note the fact that when the presence of God comes, when the presence of God comes, when the gospel is truly spoken in the power of the Holy Spirit, there must be a response. Okay, that's a fundamental underlying assumption to this entire thing that we're going to see in Acts chapter 5. In other words, in the end, indifference to the presence of God is not an option. Does that make sense? Indifference to the presence of the living God is, is not an option. God does not give that choice. That happens all throughout Scripture. When God shows up, what happens? I was just, I was gonna, I could go there. Bodies hit the floor, right? That's what happens, right? When God shows up, like, like no one, God's presence shows up and no one looks around at their friends and says like, hmm, I'm weighing a, I'm weighing a number of responses here. Uh, I think falling in my face and eating dust seems appropriate. What do, you guys, what do you guys think, right? No, the presence of God comes, and when God comes in power, people must respond. It brings about a response. It's just the way it is. God is hardwired into the universe. You have been designed as a worshiping being. When he comes, people fall on their face. That's just the way that it is. And we are finding that there is no greater, there's no greater force for chaos in this particular chapter than the gospel. What are these guys doing except proclaiming the presence of God, his Holy Spirit come through the, through the work of Jesus Christ? And yet, like a magnet, it attracts some 
and repels others, depending on the orientation of the thing that it comes in contact with. I want you to see this quote. This is from John Stott. He mentions this about Acts chapter 5. The presence of the living God, whether manifest through preaching or miracles or both, is alarming to some and appealing to others. Some are frightened away while others are drawn to faith. And this is the experience of people. I use the illustration of magnets because, for one, magnets are awesome, right? Magnets allow you to do magic tricks when you're a little kid. Put a coin on the table or put another magnet on the table. Watch this. No hands. You can move things, move a fork around. I used to do that. And then when I was older, too, it wasn't just when I was a little kid, but um, I got this magnet set. They were called buckyballs. You could, like, buy them in this little pack. And uh, they're, like, rare earth magnets. And they're actually banned now by the federal government because... uh, like hundreds and hundreds of kids thought they were candy and they would eat them and would like mess them up. And this illustration went sideways fast, right? <laughs> Everybody's like, how do we get from magnets to poor kids' intestines, right? So anyway, the point is um, this, this gospel has a kind of magnetic effect. You preach the gospel and for some, it gathers them from miles around. The towns around Jerusalem, they're coming, and more are being added, it says, than ever before. Well, at the same time, in this particular text, same message, same truth, same gospel, people are repelled to the point of, I will kill you. These are polar opposite responses. But it's one of the effects of the gospel. Here are some of the ways that people respond in this text. We're just going to walk through them. The first one is respect. And I get that basically from 12 through 16 of Acts chapter 5. It starts out, and one of the reasons there's respect is because who could not respect the power that these guys are showing? Do you note in verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. Now, there's a lot of people who make a very, very strong claim that miraculous signs and wonders and things like this are just completely done away with, that we should never expect this to happen, that God is done doing the miraculous. And I would say that I'm of the opinion that the New Testament gives us no reason to stand firmly on some sort of position of cessation as though God decided, I'm just done with those miracle things. I've been doing them for thousands of years, and now I'm just done. I don't think there's any reason to believe that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All that to say, though, we must also realize that God was doing a unique and specific work through the apostles. There's a reason that God brings them to the forefront of this account. It wasn't as though people were confessing Jesus and then given this power to walk around like Jedi, right? Like that. It wasn't every single person, but uniquely, specifically, somehow in this period, some say 50, 75, 100 years, whatever you might mark as the apostolic age of the church, the beginning of the church, Signs and wonders were being done when? Regular, regularly, on the daily, right? Just like, just dropping miraculous stuff. And then when miraculous things happened, many of those things happened. This seems like it's unavoidable to me to understand that at least in some way, the apostles had a unique place. We would come to find out that the church itself, of course, is built on their teaching. The foundation of their teaching becomes the foundation of the church. And the miraculous things that they're doing brings a sort of awe and respect from everyone. We get this curious phrase in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. This is one of those moments when like a grammar 
a grammar editor or someone who cares about the specifics and like very, being very precise in language would say something to the effect of, bro, help me with your pronouns. That's what they might, that's what they might say, right? Because we read these things and you think like none of the rest. Well, who are the rest? We don't know exactly who are the rest. Is this all the rest of the Christians? Is this all the rest of the leaders? Is this all the rest of the people in, in Jerusalem? Who, who is the rest? And then later on it says the people. Well, we don't know exactly who the people are. Is this, all, is this all the people who are part of the church? I think that's one interpretation. I think that there's a good reason to say though that the people here, these people who held them in high esteem, probably encompasses all of those people who are seeing what's happening and what's going on. The reason I know that is because a little bit later on, the leaders in this passage are afraid to bring the apostles by force, and they are afraid because of the people. Now, unless the early Christians had a penchant for stoning, right, this probably means that the people as a phrase encompasses the whole crowd. And there is a vibe going on in the crowd of respect for the Christians, respect. And I wonder if you haven't encountered this. Have you ever encountered this kind of mindset? Maybe in yourself or maybe in people that you've talked to. There is potential for people to respect Jesus, to respect the morals of the Bible, to respect someone who could be as committed to your faith. Have you had a conversation with someone where you describe passionately what what the church means to you, what Jesus means to you? They might even say something like, I really respect that. Good for you. That's great. I just, there's people who, because they're kind, because they're nice, maybe because they actually see there's a benefit there, they would say, I have a healthy respect for things of religion. Maybe they just know, they have enough of a, of a fear of God that they say, like, my mama taught me never to make fun of someone's church life, right? I respect that. I respect that. And I want you to know that a healthy esteem and a healthy respect kept them on the outside looking in a mere respect, an admiration, being a fan of Jesus, seeing respectfully in someone else's life, oh, I see that does a lot of good for you, does not forgive your sins. This is a way to, stay, to keep Jesus at arm's length. You give a tip of the hat. I'm a, I, Jesus, like, <laughs> I see you. Hey, good example there. Selflessness. I respect that. Respect is not the kind of devotion that Jesus calls followers to. We want to be respected. We want to be respectful. But this is not the mission of the church. And not only is this dangerous in our own hearts to sort of just have a healthy respect for Jesus. I'm just kind of a fan of his. I admire his, his work and his activity in his church. But I think it's a temptation for us as a church to make the underlying goal of our lives and our ministry to be respected. You set out to love someone well and to speak the gospel to them and you're having a conversation with them and you think to yourself at the end of the conversation, that went really, really, really well because the person didn't overthrow the table and they said something to you like, I really respect your opinions on these. Thanks for sharing them with me. Our goal and our mission is to see God move people from darkness to light for sins to be forgiven, not to be respected. It's possible for the entire church, for everything we do, to be simply an attempt to be respectable in the eyes of those who may be on the outside. You know that temptation happens every single moment, I think, in the institution that is the church? And many people, just because of the word, they might think respectable. Oh, well, we're not that because we're a little more casual, right? Some people think being respectable means like get the drums off your stage. We're not, 
We're not that kind of respectable, right? You can fall into this trap the same way if you desire to have the esteem of a 20-year-old hipster, fedora-wearing, right? Surfton Stevens like, bro, you guys are so cool. And I go to bed at night and I say, we're, we're respected. You can seek and undermine the mission of the church if you identify any one population and say, here's my goal. I just want to be respected by them. Do you know that God has not called us to be faithful in gaining and winning respect? We must ask people to confess their sins and be made alive in Jesus. Respect, respect, respect is a good thing. None of us should seek to be disrespected. And believe me, there's plenty of things that the church can do to be completely disrespected. There's times when people make critiques of the church and you would think that I would want to like fight them and instead I like step over to their side. <laughs> I'm like, you're right. That's totally disrespectful. But respect can never be the mission of the church. It's one of the things that keeps people from Jesus. Let me show you the next one. So someone might have a healthy respect for things of religion or Jesus. They're not quite going to resist, but there are some who give active resistance. And in this case, we find the Sadducees, starting in verse 17 through 32, basically giving active political pressure, manipulation, resistance to the gospel. They seek to harm and put down the movement that is happening in the church. And so they use every way that they possibly can. There's an interesting thing happen. Back in Acts chapter 4, one of the motivations given for their resistance was a loss of control. They feared losing control and power to these upstart, this upstart religion who it seemed like were working miraculously all the time. So power was one of the motivations to resist. In this case, we find that the reason they resist is jealousy. Jealousy is a terrible thing. It says at the end of verse 17, they were filled with jealousy. You know, sometimes just a little bit of jealousy is enough. In this case, they were overflowing with it. Have you ever been jealous to the point of overflowing? You've been there? You know how crazy you are in that moment? Anybody seen jealousy and you just think to yourself, I, I really firmly believe that jealousy, we're going to read James in just a minute, and it says that jealousy basically is a, is a fountain of chaos in emotions and in life. That's really what jealousy is. I was thinking back the one time I really remember being jealous. I was in uh, ninth grade. There's this girl that I really liked and whatever ninth grade dating means, we were, we were that, right? And then she, I think she like went on a bike ride and, and my friends saw them and she was like bike, she was on a bike ride with this other guy. And I remember just going to her house and just like, I was just, it was filled with jealousy. Like, uh, like me and a two-year-old could have had a competition, like for a fit, right? These huge pillows in her basement. I'm like throwing them on the ground. Like you said you were going to ride bikes with girls to Dairy Queen, right? <laughs> Everything becomes really precise. Like you become the most just animated grammar Nazi ever. No, you said you were going, not you went. You were, were not went, right? Everything's just crazy, on the floor, crying, just filled with jealousy, right? Jealousy is a powerful emotion. These leaders are filled with it to the point that it brings chaos into their midst. Look at James, look at the book of James, chapter 3. James 3 shows us what jealousy is, is like. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, I think this is somewhat what's happening to the Sadducees. They have jealousy. 
these Christians, these apostles are getting an influence and a following. They have power. It says, do not boast and be false to the truth. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James tells us that their jealousy is not merely human, that there is a spiritual element to the resistance of the movement of the gospel. This is not wisdom that comes from above. It's earthly, unspiritual. Demonic even goes so far as to say. And we are seeing increasingly there is a mindset where people become antagonistic to the gospel enough. They're not moved to saying, I want to harm or hurt someone, but they'll do everything that they can to make it extremely difficult for the growth of the church. Thankfully, we lived in a culture where this has not been hugely the case, but increasingly, this kind of resistance seems like it's more and more and more likely. It is more likely that there will be passive to aggressive resistance for the growth of the church, for the growth of gospel preaching. More and more likely that this kind of resistance will come. Of course, you know that the crazy story happens. They throw them in prison. Verse 19, an angel of the Lord comes. I think the, I think the fact that it's, it's not the, the definite article, it's not the angel of the Lord is significant. But an angel of the Lord comes and opens the prison doors. In Scripture, the angel of the Lord is oftentimes shows up in the Old Testament and many people think it's references to the pre-incarnate Christ. That the angel of the Lord is the only angel in all of Scripture that actually accepts worship. Abraham and his friends worship him and he accepts worship, which is why many people think this is kind of an odd angel, right? This is just an angel of the Lord opens the prison doors, they go out. And of course, we see this amazing boldness. I want you to know what's, what's bringing the resistance. You know that the early church was amazingly, they were amazingly generous. We saw that, right? For a couple chapters. No one had need. They sold their things and they cared for one another. Historians from the first and second century point to the Christian witness of caring for the destitute and the needy as one of the things that was most astounding and perplexing about them. These Christians, it says, care for not only their own poor, but ours as well. Christians were some of the first to start orphanages for babies who would have been cast away and completely left otherwise. Christians are caring for people who are sick, so much so that people are gathering from miles around so that Peter could walk by with a shadow. Christians are gathering, I'm sure, and organizing prayer meetings, right? They're at the temple. It says every day they're at the temple. They're meeting in their homes. They're having informational gatherings over, over a meal, over dessert, like Mary Kay or something, right? They're having these meetings. None of this brings about resistance. Speak the name of Jesus and resistance comes. I think this is important for us because, again, it reminds us the gospel moves us to works of love and care, and that is part of the mission of God. It's one of the ways that we commend ourselves to communities. We love our neighbor well. But at the end of the day, if our mission is void of speaking the gospel, we have lost the witness of the New Testament church. From verse 20 all the way through 42, note the number of times. You could just circle them. I do that in my Bible all the time. You could just go through and look at them. 
Verse 20 says, speak. 21, teach. Verse 25, teaching. Verse 28, teach and teaching. Verse 40, speak. Verse 42, teaching and preaching. The point is this, that when you proclaim Jesus as Lord over all, a God who cannot be controlled, you will get resistance. But it comes when you speak, when you speak, when you speak. Love well and open your mouth. That's an okay missional strategy. Love well and open your mouth when God gives you an opportunity. These are the things that bring about resistance. And then, of course, we know that at the end of the day, it was not just resistance that was brought. At the end of the day, the intensity of the message brought them to rage. Some respected, some resisted, and eventually those who resisted are moved to rage in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is instructive for us because you may encounter this oftentimes. There are many people who the reason they are putting off reckoning with Jesus Christ and the claims of the gospel is because they do not want to get angry. Sometimes you will know you're being effective in engaging someone about things that matter because it will actually harden them to the things that you're talking about. Has anyone experienced this before? Everything is casual and everything's social and everything's great and it's normal until you press things like, no, Jesus is the exclusive only way to God. And the only way to Jesus is to bring your need, to humble yourself, to admit that you're a sinner. And in this case, Peter had specific sins that he put on them. He said, yes, even you religious people, even you, all the people who have it together, the guys who are the captain of the temple, yes, captain of the temple, you're a sinner and your sins put Jesus on the cross. Sometimes pressing the reality of the gospel is a painful thing. And it moves people from just sort of, maybe it could move them. You might see all of this in the same person over the course of time. Oh, good for you. I really respect Christianity. To maybe a little bit of resistance. I don't want to get to I don't want to talk about it. Let's just leave it alone. They finally engage and you can be moved straight to rage because at the core, the gospel message is God is God and you are not. And if you want to see the heart of someone who has been clinging to sin and clinging to their dignity and clinging to control of their lives, if you want to see someone rage, then you press on that button. And that's a difficult thing to see. These people who were merely resisted were moved to rage. They said, we want to kill them. And then in the midst of that, we find another character pop up. Gamaliel, who we find out in Acts chapter 22, is actually the mentor of Saul who became Paul. He's an influential teacher, Saul was apparently like one of the best in the class. He would have been like National Honor Society president kind of guy, right? He would have have been the kid in class who was like, teacher, teacher, um, could I hand in my homework early? I did all the next few weeks ahead, and I just wondered if you had any extra work for me, right? Saul was like that kid. He was like, he said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? And the guy who taught him, that's this dude, I'm sure he's been watching with interest what happens. And this guy stands up and he stays at arm length by being reasonable. This is sort of an agnostic approach to things. It could, I mean, sure, it could be that God created all things and has a claim on us and there's a standard that we're going to be held accountable to. And I suppose it's, it's possible that this Jesus is the Son of God. And Gamaliel walks us through an interesting historical lesson of the day, Right? we find out that Jesus was not the only one to claim, I am Messiah, right? We find a couple of guys, this 
Thutis guy, as well as another guy named Judas, right? Judas is a terrible name to have at this time. What a terrible name. This is bad news. So these guys apparently, and I want you to note the mixed up juxtaposition of what happened. Gamaliel says this, these guys gained a following, died the following, ended. Two guys, gain a following, die, following ends. Gain a following, die, following ends. Jesus dies, following begins, right? This is the message of Christianity. Jesus dies, and right about the time when he dies, right about the time when the church is the most vulnerable, that's when God kicks things into overdrive and like, what's the cool car stuff? Like nitro, nitrous? Bang, right? Nitrous, right? He hits nitrous and the church takes off. But Gamaliel has this sort of reasoned approach to spiritual things. And I want you to know that being reasonable is an okay thing. God says, come, let us reason together. You've been created in his image in order to reason. Reason is fine, but reason is not given to you so that you can remain uncommitted in a wait-and-see approach to spiritual things. Eh, who knows? These crazy things, it might turn out that God is the creator of all things who's going to judge us with an unbelievably strict standard so much so that we come with our sins, we will be cast out to hell forever. Who knows? Right? And that's Gamaliel. We must call people even beyond their reason to commit to Jesus Christ. It's not enough to simply reason about these things. We can be drunk on philosophy. Reason is not enough. Of course, we know that in the midst of all of this, he speaks unbelievable wisdom. If this, is, if this undertaking, if this whole thing is of man, it's just going to peter out. But what? If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Isn't that the message of the church for 2,000 years? Do you know how often people have systematically attempted to snuff out Christianity? In places where there has been government-issued, soldier-enforced atheism, in places where Bibles have been burned and people have been imprisoned if they speak, right in the midst of those places, God erupts the growth of the church because God promised, I will build my church. Jesus is the bridegroom who is waiting on his bride who will be presented spotless one day before him. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow him. Maybe we should call the sermon series Unconquered, right? That's the idea. That's the point. Gamaliel just sets it up for us in a verse. And in all of these instances, respect and, and resistance, moving to rage, and reason comes in. In all these instances, these are just ways to keep themselves at arm's length from Jesus. His works are used of God to bring them apparently from being murdered just down to being beaten. Many people think that the common public beating of the time is 39 lashes, Right? It was commonly understood that right at about 39, you're just about to kill the guy. <laughs> so like, stop about there, right? And the response of the people when they, the apostles when they leave is just, it's just astounding. It's flabbergasting. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. They had the honor of dishonor, some have said. They had the honor of suffering. And this is not a, should not come as a surprise to them. Scripture tells us over and over, all of those who endeavor to live a righteous life will face persecution. If they hated me, they will hate you, Jesus said. Have you considered that aspect of Christianity? 
Are you here for the benefits? Are you, bringing, are you coming with the crowd just to get in the shadow of Peter? We must not shirk back from this claim. This is as plain as anything is plain. They hated me and they will hate you, Jesus said. It's an unbelievable claim. And yet God, by His Spirit, gives them grace to rejoice. And I love it. In 42, every day, in the temple and from house to house, that's one of the reasons we, we focus on gathering and scattering. Large group corporate in the temple, right? And then house to house meetings. What did they do? They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Nothing could shut their mouths. I want you to think about, in light of respect and resistance and rage and reason, what does following Jesus look like? What is asked of those who would encounter and reckon with him and follow? And the point is, is that we must see Jesus as a treasure hidden in a field worth selling all that we have and running to him with persistence. We need resilience and reverence for Jesus. If you can't think of times or ways that you have struggled with these kind of opportunities to kind of keep God at arm's length, then the scripture gives us a lot of examples of people who went that direction. Why do many not dare to join them? Why did many not dare to join in? Well, here's some examples of why many did not dare to join in. This is Luke chapter 9. This is Jesus walking through many who apparently respected Jesus but could not devote themselves to him. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And in between the, the moments of white, of ink, at the end of 58 and 59, and at the end of 60 and 61, at the end of 62, we get this impression, what? That they all went away. They did not dare join. Why? Just like the rich young ruler who says, what more shall I do? And Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. Matthew 19.22 says, when, these young, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. He respected Jesus. He wanted in on this. He wanted the benefits. He wanted to receive from Jesus but he did not dare join. For many of us, we are reckoning with Jesus Christ and we maybe dare do not come to him because we're clinging to our dignity. We think, what kind of person in this day and age believes the kind of things that it would take for me to believe to follow Jesus Christ with my whole heart? Maybe we're clinging to possessions and the comfort and stability of things I can't be generous like Christ calls me to be generous. What's going to happen to me and my family? Maybe clinging to sins, right? There's things that you think to yourself, I know the moment that I confess and the moment I run to Jesus Christ, then this entire history behind me, all these besetting sins, the things that I love, I know that they're wrong, but I've coddled them. I've cared for these sins and to give them up, to crucify them. We cannot partake in the life of Jesus if we have not willingly walked 
and been a, participate, a participant, I guess that word, a partaker in the death of Jesus. Did you get that? To be with Jesus. Tim read it from Romans 6 earlier. To participate in the life of Jesus, you must willingly bring your sins and your comfort and your stability all to him and climb on the cross and see yourself dying with him as well. Scripture doesn't pull any punches. It calls it crucifying yourself. But many do not dare to join because they're clinging to these things. And ultimately, maybe clinging to control of your life. What am I going to do? What if God gets in here and messes everything up? To give over power and control to God, a God who cannot be controlled, is a scary, scary thing. And you might want to keep him at arm's length because who, who can deal with a God like that? But I must tell you, if you are following a God who you can control, it is not God you are following. It is a figment of your imagination. And to come to Jesus Christ means to give all of yourself away. To see him as more valuable, as the only hope that you have. And when you have Jesus like that, when you have Jesus as your treasure, as more than, then you can receive everything back with gratitude and you can hold it with an open hand. And that is why the apostles, this is an R word for them, they walk in resilience. They have unbelievable resilience. I was thinking about how they just keep coming back. I use the whack-a-mole illustration. I was thinking, you know, we were at a beach a couple of weeks ago and we go crabbing. We like to go out and let our kids run around after these little sand crabs and I was watching this one crab in particular, and uh, my son had this net, and Reed would just pick up this crab, and he'd just chuck it into the ocean. He just, like, thinks it's hilarious. He just chucks it, and I don't know where this crab was trying to go, but he just, like, he just, he's crawling up the beach, right? He's going to his hole or something, wherever he's got to go. And I'm watching him, and in the midst of him climbing up the beach over and over again, a wave would come in, it'd hit him, and just, like, smash and get drifted right back out into the water. And sometimes he'd get up far enough and my kid would just like pick him up with the net, throw him back out there, right? And I'm watching this for a few minutes and we're standing there and, and every once in a while for like 10 seconds you lose sight of the crab and you think like, oh, he finally is just over. He's just gone. And then the next wave subsides and there's little crabby. Right? Just, just motoring on up the shore again. This might be a lame analogy, but I remember thinking and like looking at my son and just thinking like, this is what you need. You need, you need persistence like this. Like you need to be like this, this crab. Like, he thinks there's a monster giant, like, wielding a huge, massive net who keeps chucking him places. He's just running straight at it, right? He's just straight at it, straight at it, waves buffeting him. He's just straight at it. This, this thing, is, it was a resilient is what it was. And there's some sense where I read this and I get the same kind of thought with, with the apostles. Like, they were rejoicing because they just got beat, and here they come again. They wake up in the morning and they say, Drinking their coffee. Well, yesterday we got beat uh, for preaching Jesus. What do you want to do today? All of them look around for a second in a unison. They say, like, I think we should preach Jesus. What do you think? Yep, let's do it. Pack it up. Right back out to the temple. I believe that there's coming a time, whether you've hit it or not right now, there's coming a time where eventually you will have to put your respect, your dignity, your stuff, your sin on the line to actually follow Jesus Christ in sincerity. Fortunately, we've lived in a culture, I believe, that 
For a long time, we've had a healthy sort of respect, a freedom, a great kind of thing. I believe that if you began preaching in 1940 and ended in 1990 or something, there probably wasn't a whole lot of public resistance. We're not guaranteed that. You know that, right? You know, there's no guarantee. There's moments where it seems like increasingly, there's probably times where it's going to be a little bit more risky. Maybe you've experienced it already. You're kind of an outcast in your field a little bit. Oh, how could you possibly be an intellectual and believe those things, really? You have to do research sort of sneaky from a side angle to make it work. Lost friends, maybe. I would love to preach the gospel and serve the church for like 45, 50 more years. That's, my, that's, that's the hope. That's like, God, if, if, you t- if Christ tarries and you give me grace, I'm like, let's do this, let's do this. 45, 50 years, let's go for it. It's possible for me to wake up in the morning, maybe look at my wife and say, honey, yesterday experienced a lot of resistance, a lot of persecution preaching Jesus, what, what do we do? My prayer for you, for me, for all of us, is that we see Jesus as so valuable that we become as resilient as the apostles. That every single day we recommit again, we find the Holy Spirit moving in us to look at one another and we say this, come what may, let's speak Jesus. Come what may, let's preach forgiveness of sins in his name. And I believe that God is working in us to that end. Why don't you pray with me?